Ed Lewis was the champ. John Pesek joined the trust. I hope you like stories of violence because you're going to hear plenty of them when we talk about the year 1921. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro-wrestling history nerds. Holy heck, you made it. You're here. You're finally here. We've been waiting to start talking until you press that button. I swear, we are just tiny men living inside of your device, waiting to tell you stories about wrestling. What the heck am I talking about? Who am I? Why are we here? Not the big philosophical reasons I'm talking about this moment. My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling booker, a promoter, a, a looker at of talent, and I'm here with a William Shakespeare to my Christopher Marlowe. It's Chago Bronson. How the heck? Are you? I'm tired of holding up the Hippodrome Express for these nerds that just hit download. Where you been? Welcome to the time-traveling party that, that digs deep into the bedrock of pro wrestling's history ethos, man. And we're killing it, and we thank you guys for joining us nerds on the Nerd Ride. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. Welcome to the show. But I will put this disclaimer. If you are not versed in the uh, the wrestling world of the 1920s, you might want to take a step back. You might want to go and start with at least Ed Lewis Part 1, if not all the way back to Stanislaw Zabisco, so you can get the context of who these people are and why they're where they are and why they're doing what they're doing. If you already kind of know these people, jump right in. You can go back and listen to it later. There's going to be enough crazy stories, adventures, weird violence and threats of riots if not outright and you know outright riots. So this story is going to be wild and I cannot wait to get started in on it. Yeah, this is like cowboy shit meets pro wrestling meets pissed off ECW fans that if their man loses they riot. Plus people getting worked like marks that really think it's a shoot and they're getting hustled on both ends and not to mention the ultimate string puller in this thing, Sandow! You will probably love Billy Sandow even more by the time we're done with this episode. And keep in mind, I always bring this up, that if you are a historian, if you listen to podcasts, if you read the books, you watch the shoot interviews, you may say, hey, I thought it was this guy doing that, or according to this guy, you know, it was this person who did this, and this is why they did it. And you know what? That's entirely possible. This is me, like any major historian, taking as much of the source material as I can and mushing it all together and trying to distill the closest thing to the truth as possible. You know, because these aren't the days when there were shoot interviews. It's it's all secondhand information. It's sports writers. Everybody doing their best to tell a tale, just like we are today. Yeah, and if any of you historian nerds want to get all, you know, goodwill hunting about it with my buddy here... Let me tell you something. I'm copying his homework. So if we're going to have a, a bat, bat fleck problem real quick if you guys want to progress on that. But no, he's doing it. We have like Cerebro going into the, the deep depths of time. You don't even know the technology, the Doctor Who shit this man is bringing to the table to bring these stories to you people. And we're going to pick things up right where we left off last time with Ed Lewis as the champion. 1920 was coming to an end. Ed Lewis was wearing the belt around his waist. He was at the top of the world. Joe Stetcher, having lost the title, found himself hospitalized just before Christmas at the Fanger Danish Hospital in Omaha for a case of neuritis, which is a kind of lesion on a nerve that causes inflammation. Some reported it was a stroke that paralyzed his right side. It was, of course, spun into an angle with the Boston Daily Globe headlining did Lewis's headlock paralyze Stetcher, for example? 
I wonder who might have put that bug in a per, in a particular reporter's ear. Smells like a Sandow to me, old chap. Spinning gold out of tragedy is, you know, the great great signal callers. Great, you know, whether it's a quarterback, a booker, the ability to call the right play when things change in the moment. Sandow is is defining the position right now of pro wrestling booker and and making storylines out of organic happenings and spinning it. This guy is amazing, dude. Yeah, and it does make sense to have that type of you know, press going and that type of storytelling in the press because when you're presenting athletes as bigger than life, you know, Captain America doesn't go to the, the hospital because he has an ingrown toenail. It has to be because the Red Skull broke his arm. Totally. Everything has to be elevated because these people are characters who are elevated. So it can't be just some common man BS. It's got to be something storyline. And that also gives him plenty of sympathy for his comeback because it's like, oh, did the Strangler cripple him? Well, when he comes back, you know, it makes it a, a bigger pop, if you will. Yeah, and I'm sure he's so lucky to have a mastermind like Sandow orchestrating and, you know, telling the grand narrative behind the whole thing and spinning everything into gold. And Ed Lewis, he headed home after his big win and was greeted by his wife Ada and their horribly named daughter Bobeda. The sports pages were filled with articles about how Ed Lewis's wooden head training gave him the power to beat Stetcher. Yes, I was hoping so. I mean, this is... This is the level of carny application that was still in the game because these guys are like, oh, this sport is fake. But then they're using like a spring-loaded wooden head dummy to demonstrate the lethality of Strangler Lewis's, you know, patented hold. And these marks are buying it. This is hilarious. And before the end of the year, Earl Caddick and John Pesek had a great match in Des Moines on December 28, 1920. According to the Muscatine Journal and News Tribune, Caddick beats John Pesek in straight falls. The first in one hour, eight minutes. The second in seven minutes. Both won by a double wrist lock on the right arm. And again, this shows that Caddick is still a top contender, and it also is showing John Pesek doing business, so therefore he's trusted, and also moving up the rankings to title contention himself. Yeah, and it shows neither of these nerds know how to work, because obviously if they were working, they'd be working the left. <laughs> Ed Lewis, he was on top of the wrestling world, but he was about to begin a lifelong health battle after complaining about his eyes on the long train ride across the nation after his title win. His eyes hurt and he was having trouble seeing. It was his first bout with trachoma. Trachoma is a bacterial infection related to chlamydia that mainly affects the eyes. It causes swelling, pus, sores inside of the eyelids, scratching the lenses and cornea and can lead to blindness. It's passed much like a staph infection, so you can imagine how it swept throughout the wrestling world. It is curable with antibiotics today, but in those days it was treated with a copper sulfate salve. Don't Google it. The photos are horrible. It pretty much causes your eyes to bug out, and it causes the inside of your eyelids to grow coarse and scratch the shit out of your eyes whenever you blink. Oh, my God. This is awful. I mean, uh, I think it's another illustration of just how how much more lethal the world was 100 years ago. Like, we got to worry about ringworm and stuff when we get off the mat. They got to worry about, like, eye-eating bug parasites that crystallize the inside of your face or whatever, that sucks, oh, man. Yeah. The time before antibiotics was nightmarish because, well, again, you know, we've both gotten, uh, you know, staph infections. Uh, I had dermatological strep once because uh, the mats are not always clean places. And 
But now we just go to the doctor, we got a shot in the butt and a week of pills and we're fine. Back in these days, it was like, well, hopefully we don't have to uh, cut off one of your butts. Yeah, that, Butt cheeks, I guess you only have one butt. I don't know, or you get it like a Kevin Randleman gaping wound. You look that up, nerds. That yeah, was, that's that's the modern era stuff. I saw that thing with my own eyes, man. But trachoma became an epidemic in New York City, and President Wilson made testing mandatory at Ellis Island and created a federal fund to combat it. Every major wrestler caught it, and everyone found a cure except Lewis. <sighs> Remember a few episodes when I mentioned his issue with skin infections? I'm going to assume the two issues were connected. He just had some issues with his immune system. Some bacteria just would keep kicking his ass his entire life, and this would be one of them. Yeah, that's pretty insane to think about an entire sort of like industry, our entire industry being wiped out in a single wave of disease, you know, say what you will about the COVID lockdowns, at least we didn't have to deal with that because that sounds just like a complete game-changing catastrophe and it really sucks when now the guy who's at, who's steering the ship, you know, the, the golden goose now is the one guy who we can't get cured. That sucks. Yeah, I mean, it was a recurring thing throughout his life. It's not like he had it straight through, but it really was a problem, especially yeah. later in life. But he recovered enough from his first bout for a January 6th, 1921 match against Renato Gardini. Gardini was a hot draw in any town with a large Italian population. Shocking news with that name. It's a me, Renato. Uh, Lewis beat Gardini that night in Boston with his dreaded headlock, and the 6,000 fans rioted. <laughs> Woo! You saw that coming, Mamma Mia! Oh, there were so many, so <laughs> so, so many of like the little like the little finger shakes oh, and, yeah, uh, and white yeah. and, and undershirts. Oh boy, I'm gonna get some hate hate email over this one. Uh, the hold continued to have a life of its own, and the promoters leaned into it hard because now it was like almost. Like, he was busting out the most unfair move because nobody could escape it. It's like he's playing uh, Street Fighter Two with a game genie for uh, old men like myself. So, it's like, again, he was kind of a respected person, but it was just seen as almost unfair because nobody could escape the headlock. Yeah, I mean, that is what we call good booking and getting your shit over, man. I mean, they have got this whole legitimately... You know, I've thought about this, you know, because in my shoot job, I teach jujitsu. I work with some law enforcement officers. And the stigma where law enforcement is less hesitant to pull their firearm than to use a chokehold, that had a new level of aspect to me I was thinking about. I wonder how much of that is just preconceived stigma that these guys put into place in the public consciousness back then. Because they really did have the chokehold banned. I mean, this became a, you know, a big thing, man. They really got it going. And it got even hotter when Ed Lewis and Earl Caddick had a rematch under Jack Curley's promotion on January 24th at the 71st Regiment Armory Building. Caddick was seen as the favorite due to his clean win over Lewis only a few months earlier. Lewis weighed in at 228 pounds, 40 pounds heavier than Caddick's 188. The papers were filled with Caddick better look out for the headlock that paralyzed Stetcher type stories. The Burlington Gazette went as far as to print a photo of Stetcher in his hospital bed as a warning for Caddick. Damn, that's like a proto dirt sheet, and that's that's still doing good business now. Which uh, I missed it. With where is this match taking place? Uh, New York. New York. Oh, okay. Well, I got my money on the heels, darling. In front of eight thousand fans, 
Everything Caddick attempted was cheered, and everything Lewis did was booed. The two men knew each other well enough and worked fantastically together, with Caddick being fluid technicality and Lewis being power and pure meanness. Caddick would find ways to break the headlock again and again, until Lewis finally wore him down and used it to pin and win it. Caddick was laid out on the canvas, unable to get to his feet, showing the punishing effect of the hold. And the crowd was furious and on the verge of rioting. The crowd stormed the ring, smashing through the luxury box seats. Caddick's team, including Gene Malady, worked to revive the man of a thousand holds as the security barely held back the crowd. Yeah, so they're just storming the ring and his guys are like, no, stay down, they're buying that shit, but we gotta get you up in a second, let's get him revived. That is a chaotic scene, and that's when you truly have people by the proverbial emotional balls. Yeah, if you listen to this description from the Kansas City Times on January 25th, quote, When Lewis rolled off of Caddick, the latter lay like a dead man on the floor, and when his manager <laughs> and others scrambled through the ropes to assist it was all they could do to lift him to his feet. A chair was placed beneath him in the center of the ring, but he rolled to the floor again and a call was made for the doctor. This drove the crowd to a frenzy as Caddick had been cheered lustily throughout the evening while Lewis was steadily booed and derided. Cries of, kill the murderer, went up and there was a concerted rush for the ring. Caddick's manager waved the excited wrestling fans back, and when Caddick was seen to recover and walk to his corner, danger of a riot quickly passed. <laughs> I'm stealing it. I'm stealing the finish. Yeah, that I, is I, good shit, I, man. I, I love that. Like they, you know, even Caddick is like, "Oh, this is gonna go real bad," but I can't just pop to my feet yeah. and expose the work. It's like, well. Ed Lewis may be murdered by this crowd, but I'm not breaking kayfabe. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, we got him up so good to sit on the chair. I'm just going to get a little more. Oh, no, too much, too much, too much. Oh, that's good shit, man. So Caddick was brought to consciousness after a few minutes. He got to his feet and shook Lewis's hand, which is probably the only reason the Strangler got out of there alive. Security still had to escort Lewis as he pushed his way to the back. In the same paper, Larney Lichtenstein did his best to get attention for John Pesek, hyping him up as being able to beat anyone and stating that any amateur wrestlers hereabout who have a hankering towards testing their ability against Pesek can do so this afternoon at the KCAC. Pesek will meet anyone there at 2 o'clock and this will constitute his workout. So, that was that for a bit of, uh, a, a bit of attention getting? Pretty much putting out a public challenge. Hey, this is where Pesek's going to be working out. If anybody wants to come down for an ass whooping, he's gone all day. Yeah, come. We, Mike Tyson needs sparring partners, darling. You think you're Billy Badass? Come, come down to fuck around and find out Avenue and see for yourself what the deal is. That is that is scary. <laughs> That's actually really cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to discount from the first part of the story with. You know, Caddick and oh. Lewis and nearly causing a riot, but Pesic almost stealing the, the the sporting news thunder with a open challenge to the public. You got to be confident in what you can do if you're doing something like that. Dude, that is a sand wow. <laughs> January 27th in Kansas City, Lewis beat Gustav Solzo, leaving him unconscious on the canvas, which caused yet another riot. Riot number two. Do you think... Listen, back to... Man, he's, he's got the streak going. 
John Pesek beat Vladek Zabisco on the same card, winning two straight falls, both via toehold. Yeah, well, that didn't that didn't quite get the same. Dude, Strangler, you know what else? Another interesting fact is you got the Kansas City News out in New York covering it. Anytime any baby faces get any progress, it's happening in the Midwest shows in Kansas City and Iowa and Nebraska, and they're developing... They're finding kind of by trial and error, if we do this over here, these people really like it. If we do it over here, they really don't like it. And they're kind of, you can see how it's sort of starting to form the crust of territory preferences. And not since the days of the original Strangler had there been a villainous champion like this, who was hated so much that violence broke out after his brutal victories. Because after the original Strangler, Evan Lewis, you had men like, Farmer Burns, and Tom Jenkins, and Duncan McLeod, and Farmer Burns, and then Frank Gotch, and all the way up to Joe Stetcher and Earl Caddick. So even though guys like Gotch, who were grade A dirty fighters and jerks, they were still cheered as heroes, uh, cheered as the favorite champions. It had been decades, you know, about, about 40 years at this point, since the last time there was a champion that everybody wanted to see die in the ring and would try to kill him if he won. None of those guys had the mouthpiece and creative component, the Paul Heyman, if you will, to the Brock that Strangler has with Sandow and with the trio and the trust, man. He, he's developing... He's got so much, he has the same level of intellectual and production muscle and hustle that he has with his skill in the ring. And that's why he's becoming, I, we haven't seen a heel get over like this. Not to this level. No, it's been a long, long time. Because for many uh, decades, it had been kind of the American versus foreigner storylines because we had so many European wrestlers coming over before and during World War One, But now you had more or less... A level playing field on how people were treated in wrestling anyway for the most part and at this time Joe Stetcher had lost the title but he kept the belt this was the nice one presented by his Nebraska fans to celebrate his first title win this is the one where the the village people scraped their uh, their their rupees together to buy something for their 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 Czech bohemian champion so Lewis needed a belt Lewis was presented with a new one in Kansas City, claimed to be worth $10,000 with 39 diamonds and gold plate. And it was often referred to as the Lewis belt moving forward. That's awesome. On January 30th, Jack Curley banned Lewis's headlock from competition in his shows. Between the newly formed commission looking over his shoulder, bad press over the riots, and the very real possibility that someone would get killed next time the crowd went apeshit, he didn't have much choice. Yeah, and if you, you know, we're talking about on the New York side of things, right? Exactly, because now they had a commission. Now we had that boxing and wrestling commission, which was headed by William Muldoon. But Muldoon was a Greco-Roman man. He did not appreciate or very much like the brutality of some of the holds, or at least how the holds were presented in kayfabe. And he didn't like the working element of it either. Yeah, so there was a lot of a lot of heat on wrestling, and Curly was smart. He wanted to keep as much heat off of him as possible, because he, he understood there is that fine line when it comes to that white heat. There's a fine line that comes between we are getting press, we are making money, and the very real possibility that someone's going to fucking die because of it. Yeah, I mean, there's that story about Flair making the call to drop the title in the ring in Puerto Rico because he was legitimately worried about getting stabbed or whatever. Yeah, this is that 
times you know times three. Yeah, this is the only way you're getting out of that crowd with your life is if you guys work together and appease them. Otherwise, they will rip you to shreds, man. And that's this is the shit that I live for, man. When you get the crowd so worked up that they're ready to kill somebody, that's that's the name of the game. This is an emotional elicitation. We want to make the crowd feel, and they are making them pissed. On January 31st in Greeley, Colorado, Stanislaus Abisko, who was back to active competition, racking up the wins, beat a young wrestler named Toots Mont. And you might remember a couple episodes ago when I was going to say, we're going to start talking about Toots Mont. I didn't take into consideration how many cool stories I was going to find between point A and point B. So first time we're really going to hear from this guy, but don't you worry, you're going to hear plenty about him in the future. Yes. Oh, Toots. Toot toot, what a hoot. Yes, Greeley though, shout out to Greeley, yes. Yeah, he started his real comp- competitive years here in Colorado. February 3rd, Jack Curley sent telegrams to the top 50 promoters in the U.S. Imagine getting left out of that list if you were running shows at that time. Claiming he wanted to have a meeting to go over rules and ban dangerous holds. There's no proof that this meeting ever happened. It might have just been a publicity stunt to take the heat off of him and Lewis's matches. The New York legislature at this point was working on a bill to ban the headlock, toehold, stranglehold, and leg scissors. So Curly clearly wanted to get in front of that and try to make it seem like we're policing ourselves so we don't need outside interference. Something you kind of see a lot in uh, MMA and boxing, even today. Yeah, and, and, and just in life, one thing that you'll notice is oftentimes changes in a way a sport or something dangerous is legislated is is a, a almost knee-jerk response to an individual incident. It's like one guy got badly hurt from a 12 to 6 elbow, even though that wasn't even the case. They went off of like an ice-breaking thing. But you've seen it a few times where like one thing will happen and they'll be like, yeah, that doesn't get to happen again. And, and it really... When you have uneducated people to the science of fighting making those decisions, and it's just like, oh, the the body scissors is banned, but not like the the you know the the key the uh, key lock, the wrist the double wrist lock. Yeah, it's it becomes very arbitrary because everything is about that public perception. You know, it's like how um, I remember in UFC two in one of the preliminary bouts. Orlando Veed, an amazing Muay Thai kickboxer, soccer kicked the ungoshly heck out of his opponent, and that was the fight that made John McCarthy say, I get the I get the power to stop fights or we're not doing this anymore. And exactly. I guarantee you that fight was the footage when they were putting together universal rules in the United States for MMA. I guarantee you that was the clip that was shown that kept soccer kicks out. Oh yeah, and that's what it comes down to. It's like one very, very bad incident of a certain thing will get it banned. Like, I mean, what, Tank Abbott probably got three rules created because he, like, tried to push somebody out of the ring over the top. Remember that? Yeah. And meanwhile, (laughs) you know, it's like UFC allows elbows and things like that. But because for those of us dumb enough who have done fights with soccer kicks, 99% of the times when it happens, it's more like, ow, hey, fucker, ah, damn it. You know, that's your reaction. It's not... It's not as brutal as it looks. It's more like just getting peppered with some weird jabs until you get caught up with a stiff one. But the moral of the story is optics are everything, and Curly was trying to get out in front of it to create his own. Yeah, and they and he's you know trying to save, protect the market, and protect the territory. You're taking the 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 you know the best pitch away from the ace pitcher. You know you take away Strangler Lewis's stranglehold when he's the champ. He's the top draw. I mean, it's almost putting him in the babyface position because then if someone beats him, it's like you didn't beat 
the strangler, though. You know? I mean, maybe... If he's got enough heat, it doesn't matter, and they just want to see him lose. But I just... I th- You know, that's tough. And amidst all this, Joe Stetcher returns. Joe Stetcher made his first match back on March 7th, 1921, beating John Olin, then lost a match against Stanislaw Zabisco on March 14th at the 71st Armory. After fighting off Stetcher's scissors, Stanislaus picked up the former champ, slammed him, and got the pin at 2 hours and 16 minutes in front of 7,000 fans. But I've got some bad news. There was no riot that night. What? Man, boo! Who booked this shit? If there's no riot, we riot. This is the armory, man. Yeah, you would think that like there were probably disappointed fans, like some some New York uh, some New York fans who bought their tickets. They got a pillowcase full of doorknobs ready to swing, and they're just brokenhearted and heading back to home. They're like, damn it, our guy won. Fuck. On February seventeenth, Lewis beats Pesic in Kansas City. It was two out of three falls, drawing five thousand people. Lewis won two straight falls. The second one, according to the Oskaloosa Daily Herald, Lewis started to work with his headlock. He applied this hold seven times, each time weakening Pesic until he finally was a mere toy in the champion's hands. The Joplin News Herald claimed, As Pesic lay on the floor, the crowd which had jeered Lewis frequently during the match closed about the ring. Several policemen surrounded the champion as he left the arena with them after Pesic had revived. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, so they took the show on the road, Daddy. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a weird dichotomy because on one hand we have Curly in New York trying to like lessen the headlock, lessen the risk of public violence, trying to keep things as balanced as possible to keep the cops and legislature off his ass, but knowing the emotional reaction now when they go to Kansas City, it's like okay, we're gonna get this crowd so riled up they may try to kill me. Hell yeah. Like, oh, we got an angle for you. We did this in New York, and it basically changed the laws. We're going to get this headlock banned here, too. <laughs> that is heat. Heat. But, but headlock choke out aside, Pesic apparently recovered just fine and married Merle Longstreet Mahoney, a school teacher from Poole, Nebraska, on Valentine's Day. Isn't that cute? Longstreet Mahoney. It sounds like a Dick Tracy villain. Yeah, it sounds like a Longstreet Mahoney. Sounds like a like a like a like a Pinkerton detective. Yeah, totally. That's an awesome name. The next week, Pesic went to a draw with Jim Lon- blah, blah. The next week, Pesic went to a draw with Jim Londos on February twenty second in a charity match for the institutions of crippled children of Chicago, drawing twelve thousand fans and raising fifteen thousand dollars. A heck of a lot of money for a charity back in those days. That's awesome. I wonder what the promo was like. He's like, I'm gonna cripple my opponent, and half this money's gonna go to him. You little broken children, heal life. Yeah, it's like, it's like, oh, right. It's like, hey, the audience was pretty quiet. Well, all those children lost their hands in industrial accidents because there was child labor in those days. Oof. Ooh, that is stiff. So they were, they yeah. were there. That's that silent heat. Yeah, <laughs> just, it's like the crowd loved it, but just then, then like little kids like pounding their stumps together doesn't make quite as much clapping noise. This is one of those moments where it's probably good the show's not video recorded. <laughs> In early 1921, Pesic was officially in the fold of the trust, brought on as a policeman. The non-trust contracted wrestlers were shut out of the big city marquee matches and would have to first take on John Pesic to get their foot in the door. This involved putting over Pesic without being difficult. 
If the wrestler tried anything funny or was less than cooperative, the dangerous shooter would beat them the hard way and send the upstart back out the door. The attempted trust busters were not treated gently. And this is very smart because that puts them in a position where if somebody wants to do business with us and we can do money, cool. This is how you're going to prove you're not an asshole. But if you fuck up, this guy's going to, uh, you know, this guy's going to put you out. Yeah, I think it's a, a great practice. You see it a lot now in the modern days, more in like MMA gyms and jiu-jitsu gyms where you have sort of like your gatekeeper. If somebody comes in with some with some skills and some training already, you usually have that, like the policeman position who sort of gauges their skill and it's like if they, you know, if they're being a jerk, that's the guy that takes care of them. The policeman is sort of like the trash man, as they say. A good way to put it, because the trust was made up of very smart men who knew they had to protect their image and business. This meant not using outside and unproven talent and supplying their own referees to avoid screw jobs. You know, you've, you've heard many stories already where a referee had side money on somebody and tries to uh, make, a, make a mockery of the match, if you will, and all heck breaks loose. But in situations like this, they realize, you know, Sandow and Curly and the Stetcher brothers go, we have a business to protect. There's people who are going to be on the outside, and if they want in and we can use them, they're going to have to prove themselves to not only you know, be able to perform and be a draw, but that they're willing to put over other people on their way up. You don't just get that first match with Ed Lewis and try to start some shit. You're going to have to go through this guy, and if he gets even a bad feeling about you, he's going to stretch you like nobody's business. Yeah, it's a good system to, of sort of verification and vetting people that they're willing to work and do business because you know at the end of the day somebody can get in there with the champ and try to go into business for themselves and it, that's the double cross folks and that's that's what the policeman is there to protect against and for Pesic, the reward was promises of being a top guy and even champion someday ed lewis put him over publicly stating i will say this of of young fellow Pesic, if he stands up the way he is going at the present time, nothing in the world can keep him out of the championship inside two years or more. He is green and raw at the finer points of the game, but he is learning fast and within a short time all of the boys will have to reckon with him. So in other words, he's good, he'll be great, but right now he's not in my league. Yeah, he's basically... You know, there's a lot of contextual stuff there. I mean, he's literally telling him, like, this is my run for the next two years, and you're the next guy in line if you don't fuck this up. <laughs> and with this new arrangement with the trust, John Pesic was getting his first East Coast push at this time. I'd like to thank Steve Yohei for introducing me to this term in his biography about Ed Lewis, where he referred to Pesic not just as a hooker or a shooter, but as a ripper. Someone who would aim to hurt people, Ooh. not just beat them. I like that. How do you achievement unlock that? Can I can I get a can I get a ripper booking? You got anybody you don't like, Dossie? Yeah, but mostly I see that person in the mirror. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no point, no point in breaking what's already broken. As part of the undercard for the Stanislaus Zabisco versus Charlie Peters match on February 28th, the Trust sent him to teach a firm lesson to Armis Leighton, a heavyweight Finnish wrestler with 29 wins in New York City. The match was under Curly's umbrella and took place at the 71st Armory on February 28th, 1921. The match lasted 17 minutes and it was all Pesic. Leighton got in zero offense and looked powerless all the way until the end when Pesic caught him in a hammerlock and gave, he gave up. 
The Finnish grappler outweighed Pesic by 20 pounds, yet was thrown through the ropes several times, and quit mid-match after being roughed up and his arm cranked with a hammerlock. The New York Evening World stated, The Finn didn't relish this sort of a party. The Lincoln Sunday Star described it as, So sustained and so furious with the attack of the farmer that Lightning was swept before it like a feather in a gale, and finally in 17 minutes hoisted the white flag. In other words, don't piss off the Nebraska Tiger Man. Finish him. <laughs> the, the Nebraska Tiger Man is a fierce motherfucker, and he just toyed and literally played with his food. You know, that's that's what this was about back then, man. And and because motherfuckers think that they they can go into business for themselves, or they think that. Pro wrestlers are, you know, oh, it's fake or whatever. These aren't some tough guys. Eh, you might run into the baddest motherfucker you ever met in your life. Sandow told the press that Pesek nearly tore off his Finnish foe's arm. <laughs> yes, clearly, clearly a work. Yeah, right, dude. This is what, that's how you know it was a shoot. It went 17 minutes. And it was probably because he wanted it to go 17 minutes. Oh, yeah, that's that's the feeling I get. This has a feeling of Pesek probably could have put him away in two minutes. But a lesson had to be taught. Yeah, the finish got delayed on the finish. On March 15th, Ed Lewis bought an airplane. Yes! Why is this important? Well, Ed Lewis bought a plane, a Laird Sparrow. He and Sandow took flying lessons. And this is 1921, so this was a very dangerous hobby to take up. But it allowed them to fly from show to show like a pair of maniac big shots. They hired a pilot to do the real flying to ensure the champ would get to shows alive. This was, again, like if planes were not, flying places was not common, it was not safe, it wasn't practical. But being a big shot champion, he put his money on a goddamn airplane and got flown city to city to city like a celebrity. G5 for my boy! No more bitch fucking uh, uh, Amtrak miles. He's he's flying and he's he's doing what the champ does. He's creating that proto champ persona, and that is beautiful. And said, "Sand, of course, man, of course, Sandow's behind it." March fourteenth, nineteen twenty-one. Joe Stetcher makes his first big match back in a losing effort against Stanislaw Zabisco in New York City. Stetcher was described as looking healthy and athletic, but still no match for the more experienced Zabisco, despite Stanislaus being described as a trifle obese. Ooh. In front of 7,000 fans at the 71st Regiment Armory, Stetcher was pinned in 2 hours and 16 minutes. But I love that, that old-timey polite zinger, a trifle obese. Yeah, that, that's a cool one. That, that is, yeah, that is backhanded with a, with a velvet glove for sure. But, like, you know, talking about some Tyson Fury bod, like, you may not like it, but peak performance or whatever the quote is. And you may be thinking, hey, idiots, what the hell happened to Vladek Zabisco? You jerks haven't said fuck all about him for a while. Well... Vladek pretty much falls off the record for a while. The two brothers stated that they'd never wrestle each other. Stanislaus was the returning hot star, and Vladek was seen as a bit of a backburner, temporary has-been. 
He had some matches until early 1921, and then just kind of disappears from the public eye in the United States. So he'd been kind of on, on the downturn. He'd been losing matches, putting people over, not getting the top bookings. Stanislaus was back. He was on the ascent. He was on his way up. And I feel that Vladik probably had a, you know, got some sort of work doing bookings, office-type stuff. He started doing tours of Europe again. He started doing tours of South America, including, many years later, a match against... Alio Gracie that hopefully we'll do an episode about at some time. Oh, yeah. And also, how can they miss you if you don't go away? It's smart when you're on the lower end of the card because you've been so normalized to the audience. He took some time off. He let his brother get over. He let the things develop. I'm sure Sandow had some communication and some idea of that. And then he brought him back as a fresh threat. Curly booked Pesic against Lewis on April 4th, 1921 at the Armory. The title was on the line. The headlock was banned. And Lewis claimed he'd retire if he lost. Pesic was wrestling circles around Lewis and would do a headstand flip to his feet to escape holds. Lots of showmanship on his part, a lot of athleticism. And Lewis grew frustrated and put Pesic in the forbidden headlock. The disappointed crowd of 4,000 people gasped in horror, as was the custom at the time. The ref broke it up, and Lewis grabbed hold of a wrist lock, working it for two minutes until Pesic escaped. Now wrestling with only one usable arm, he was no match for Lewis and was pinned in 1 hour 34 minutes. Again, how do you tell a heel story but still keep the baby face strong after a loss? That's it right there. Dude... That was brilliant. Because, first of all, one of the things that, that fans don't understand when they get mad when stuff gets banned, it gets banned so that the heel can do it behind the referee's back or in a, in a dirty way to get heat. And he used it brilliantly because it didn't directly cause the finish, but it ripple effects secondarily caused the finish. And that is just fantastic nuanced storytelling. There. Exactly, because we have banned the headlock that is causing riots and so much hatred. So when he does it anyway, that crowd is going to lose their goddamn mind. The ref breaks it up, but then he's yeah. worn down. Pesic gets caught, get his arm caught. But now Pesic's arm is hurt, and he can't he can't fully fight back, and he's no match for the, the villainous strangler. So, yes, it was... A little bit of a disappointing house with only 4,000 people showing up, even though most promoters would kill for 4,000 people showing up to a show these days. But they lost their goddamn minds. They got their money's worth out of that ticket. Oh, and they built the, you know, the key is you never leave the baby face flat. You give them an out. And right now they know that, oh, if that dirty strangler hadn't gotten that band hold and then when the ref broke him up he snatched his arm and that opening wouldn't have been there and they, they got him right where they want him to, to keep drawing money man that is some that is some brilliant storytelling on april 12th ed lewis had a match against earl caddick at the des moines coliseum for promoter oscar thorsten since they were out of new york the headlock was perfectly legal and it was slated for two out of three falls i got very ring announcer with that didn't i <laughs> it was listed as the largest indoor crowd in Midwest history at that point, and Lewis won both falls in under an hour 45, both times with a headlock. The crowd booed, called Lewis fat, he had been putting on some weight to be fair, and they threw rocks at the champion. It was indoors, so I assume they brought rocks from home in case of this outcome. Jealousy, man. You know what I'm seeing, though? 
It's like New York is the only place where the headlock is banned. That's where they're showing on the big story, on the big grand, grand collective narrative that he's vulnerable. He can beat him with the, the headlock anywhere. It's easy business. But when the headlock's taken away, there's a chance. And I feel that they're going to they're gonna be able to draw a tremendous house as they build to what I smell as a big blow-off coming. The next day in Chicago, Ed Lewis beat Jim Londos, and Stanislaw Zabisco beat John Pesek. Pesek was the hot up-and-comer. Zabisco was the nostalgic legend. And why is that good booking right there to this day? That's, again, a little bit of Wrestling 101. You have you bring back the nostalgia act. When a wrestler has been gone or out of the business for a number of years, now their appearances are special. Or if they come back for a longer run, it really means something. And that's true back then. It's true of, you know, even in modern times, like when Brock Lesnar first came back, or The Undertaker's WrestleMania appearances, or uh, you know, even a guy like Sting coming back a full, for essentially a full-time schedule. If you're nostalgic for a guy from when you were a kid, and there were many people now who are adult wrestling fans that remembered Stanislaw Zabisco from when they were young, they want to pay top dollar to see the thing that got them excited about wrestling when they were kids. That's just how the brain works when you're a fan. Oh, yeah, it's, and it works so well on that level. And then you have the other level where this guy is now working with the next class of contemporaries and in the fans eyes it's like okay we know the standard of what he was versus our generation now we have a comparative point of analysis to judge this current crop of talent we don't know anything about it serves so many purposes it's called giving the rub he's getting these young guys over and using his name to help build other names it's it's another layer of building a functioning system in a territory it's great with Zabisco getting the win over Pesek, it set up a match between Stanislaus and Ed Strangler Lewis, which happened under Jack Curley's promotion at the 22nd Regiment Armory on May 6, 1921. Curley and Stanislaus had a good relationship, having met in Europe while Benjamin Roller was set to wrestle the Great Gamma and had been managing his younger brother Vladik. He was older than everyone on the scene. He wasn't in great shape, but was still and was still primarily a Greco-Roman man at heart. He did pick up a lot of the catch wrestling uh, tools and tricks, but his base was still Greco-Roman. You don't really outrun your base for, for most of your life. So he learned how to do entertaining matches, but still with the kind of like the functional base of it being Greco-Roman. And one thing we know now through like someone like Randy Couture, who won the heavyweight title to somebody 40 pounds bigger than him when he was 46 and held it for almost two years, lost it when he was 48. His base is Greco. Greco is not built on explosiveness, speed, flexibility. It's about being uh, bulldozer, power, leverage, upper body grips, and, and, and disbalance, and taking your... There's not even... In traditional Greco, you're not even allowed to use your legs or do anything below the waist, so it's a lot... It's kind of one of those styles that an old man can do better than almost anything else, and it probably makes him really formidable, actually. And if you listen to the older episodes about guys like William Muldoon, uh, Theobald Bauer, you'll hear about these Greco-Roman matches going hours upon Ugh. hours upon hours, boring the hell out of everyone. So it really does say good things about Zabisco, understanding that he needed to adapt not just to 100% worked matches, but also to make entertaining matches. 
Yeah, and he's he under. It sounds like he really understands his lane, his place in the greater hierarchy of of what they have on the scene at this new era that he's in now, where he's the sort of elder statesman, you know. And going in against Stanislaus, this was a rare case of Lewis facing someone his own size. While still heavy, Zabisco had lost 50 pounds since re returning to the United States and resuming his wrestling career. He also shaved his head, rumored to help escape the headlock. That was something I saw in, in, in papers. I'd be like, oh, did he shave his head so he could pop his head out easier so, so his hair wouldn't get caught in the headlock? I assume that uh, this is the probably the reason Curly from the Three Stooges also shaved his head. <laughs> That's amazing. Escape, I mean, to escape from Moe's headlock. Well, to be fair, you know, if they're the now slicking or greasing is a thing that people do in grappling. I've you know I've actually been the victim of that. Had an opponent do that before, where they put some shit on and you can't get a hold of them. So in that way, I guess maybe a little bit if you were to grease your head, but. I mean, more, that's just that's just good angle in the press. Exactly. And 10,000 fans showed up to watch this title match go down. Lewis was the aggressor in this heavyweight tussle. And it was fast-paced and exciting. And at the 20-minute mark, Lewis attempted to jump and grab the headlock. But Zabisco ducked it. And Lewis sprawled out and landed on his back. Zabisco dove onto his stunned opponent and grabbed a neck hole to force Lewis's shoulders to the mat for a pin. Stanislaw Zabisco was now the world champion. The crowd rushed the ring, but to cheer this time for the newly crowned king of the ring. Celebrating the end of the hated Lewis's reign of terror after four months and 24 days on top. Brilliant, man. I mean, what a booking. He, had a, he got... He got ten thousand people there. It's back in the territory where the where the the headlock is banned, and now the good guy kind of uses a similar version of some kind of neck hold to get the finish, and and it's classic heel getting his comeuppance. And the crowd blew, man. They took him on the journey, and they popped him for the finish of the story. And you know, ten thousand people hitting the ring for a babyface finish. You can't say that's not good shit. Yeah, I mean, you have that, the older, once again, the older nostalgia button, particularly in New York, where you saw a lot of his earlier matches before World War One. You have the nostalgia act beating the heel champ. You really can't book it better than that. And, and, and real quick on that level, too, you got a Greco guy trying to appease a Greco-based athletic commission and biased organization in town. Ooh, you know? I didn't think about that. That's a, that's a good point. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's definitely a Sandow layer there. He's like, no, we'll give them what they want. We'll give them a, you know, give yeah. the old dog a bone. Yeah, it was, you know, there was. There was a lot of reasons, I think, to put the belt onto him. Um, there was also rumors that Lewis would retire if beaten or would have retired no matter what the outcome. He debunked these rumors and said, if I am to retire after my match with Zabisco, I ought to be the one to know about it. But yeah, there were a lot of reasons why this title switch was a good thing. Uh, there was a lot of heat on Lewis at his headlock from the Athletic Commission. The legislator was talking about banning holds. There was a lot of negative press. There were riots that were risking a wrestler or a policeman or a janitor or an audience member's death every single time. And there's also like possibilities like Steve Yohe posits that the low draw of Lewis versus Pesic plus the you know, public and political heat as well, were the cause for the title switch. But also keep in mind, they weren't doing long title reigns. Like most of these title reigns were less than a year. 
you know, uh, Caddick didn't hold it very long. Stetcher didn't hold it very long. So it only makes sense that Lewis doesn't hold it very long. He might have held it a few months longer. But, yeah, all those other factors really overlap into making the title switch a smart move. Yeah, they dropped it in the way that had the most positive domino effects in the most different layers of the game, from the political game to keeping the title picture fresh to giving the audience, you know, delivering on a big finish when, once you've built them and, and sort of, like, conditioned them to be ready for that. They, they did it well, man, and you know... Especially when you're talking about like Muldoon, that's a you know that you couldn't imagine a better, probably more, more appeased athletic commission after that finish. Yeah, because Zabisco was a very different type of champion. He was older, sophisticated, European, and a holdover from the days of Hackenschmidt and Gotch. He had all the attributes that you want a respectable champion to have. Yeah, and he's he's the perfect guy because one, his younger brother is kind of a bigger star than him in a lot of ways. He's a great ambassador for the sport. He's a great bridge and sort of like a singular representation of marriaging the two of when it was old, like, legit competition and Greco-based to now. He's a, he's a great, great, like, figurehead to be in that position right now. It's brilliant maneuver. It was a big change. And speaking of big changes... Jack Hurley started to fade from the wrestling world after this. He'd been avoiding Madison Square Garden whenever possible because of his personal animosity with Tex Rickard, who managed the garden. Curley was primarily running the armories because they were under control of the National Guard and not the commission, so Curley didn't have a promoter's license when that changed. Wrestling was also in financial decline. It wasn't in ruins by any mean, but boxing was making more money at the box office. And while looking through newspapers in 1921, I've noticed that boxing matches were becoming bigger and more important, more important than wrestling at most times. Jack Hurley had been close with contender Georges Carpentier, but was outbid by his rival Tex Rickard to promote a fight between Carpentier and Jack Dempsey. According to Dempsey's autobiography, Tex Rickard asked him to carry Charpentier for four rounds to ensure enough motion picture footage and give the crowd their money's worth. So Dempsey didn't knock out Charpentier until the fourth round. The fight ended up being boxing's first million-dollar gate. So a work got them their first million-dollar gate by a, by, a, by a shady pro wrestling booker on the outside operating purely out of spite and vengeance as his motivation. Yeah, it's his Tex Rickard. He wasn't a sports guy to begin with. He he was just an investor who liked what he saw in combat sports. He pushed Jack Hurley out of boxing. He started taking over wrestling a bit in that territory. And he understood the money more than anybody else because at this time, the gate was important, but you also made a good amount of change off the motion picture rights because for big matches, wrestling, boxing... They would shoot it like a movie and then show it in movie theaters all over the country. And he knew that Dempsey was going to win this and probably would win it fast. So he went to him and said, it was like the old pride days. Like, hey, we'll give you X amount if you win, but we'll give you X amount if you win in the fourth round. Yeah, so exactly. That, yeah. yeah, so that fight went to a fourth round, spectacular knockout finish, and everybody got their money's worth, and everybody who was getting paid got paid big time. Yeah, and they, they're just basically replaying the playbook of pro wrestling 40 years prior when everybody could get away with it thinking it was on the up and up. you got to be careful about pulling them hippodromes. On May 26, 
New champ Stanislaus Abisko beat Joe Stetcher in Kansas City in two straight falls. One hour, 52 minutes for the first, 13 minutes for the second. Another heroic effort by Stetcher, who was nonstop aggression against the much bigger Polish wrestler. So, again, you know, you'll have these two out of threes where you make the first one a massive contest, and then they go, all right, just 16 minutes, let's get the fuck out of here, I'm tired. Yeah, they're like, all right, go right into the waterfall for the second finish. We are going home again, darling. Yes. Yeah, it's like, we went we went uh, one hour, 52 minutes on the first one. Finger poke a doom me, buddy. We got to get, I got places to be. Yeah, we're doing 10% of that now for the second and third finish combined. And around this time, Ed Lewis seemed to have taken time off to regain his health and to concentrate on being a pilot, according to some papers. Much of the summer was uneventful in the wrestling world, with the big stars taking time off or engaging in meaningless small matches. Joe Stature only wrestled a few times and told the Race Journal that he hasn't been feeling well and rest will do him more good than a barrel of money. Problem is, they don't have a top heel to draw with when all is right in the realm... And the heroes have no dragons to slay. You ain't going to sell a lot of tickets to that movie, darling. Yeah, so it was up to guys like John Pesek, for example, who on July 6th in Fort Morgan, Colorado, beat Toots Mont. You know, starting to hear that name again. But the next night in Crookston, Nebraska, this is another one of those stories I absolutely love. In Crookston, Nebraska, Pesek took on Ben Pavelka. Before the match, the referee, Joe Chicoin, announced that a $500 bet has been made that Pesic would throw Pavelka twice in 20 minutes, or would beat him once so bad that he couldn't continue. Nine minutes into the match, Pesic picked up Pavelka and slammed him so hard that the ref claimed he couldn't continue the match. The referee said it was a square match, but that Pesic fought fair, but with questionable means. The crowd was pissed and started yelling unkind things to the wrestler. The chief of police told them to knock it off, the crowd kept getting wilder, so the chief of police pulled out his nightstick and started beating the shit out of them. Woo! The whole crowd went wild and threatened both Pesek and the cop. The chief pulled his pistol and held the crowd at bay until he and Pesek could escape. Pesek made it safely to the next town, but when he returned to collect his winnings, he could only recover his original bet. <laughs> what a throwback party move. Like that felt that feels like something from, like, the carnival days. That feels like something that should have happened in the 1890s, not the 1920s. <coughs> yeah, I just see him, like, he's all sweating. He pulls out the piece. He's got the revolver. He's like, stay back. Going like this. Back. Oh, my God. That is that is amazingly terrible booking that worked out tremendously well. Yeah, because this isn't, like, some big Madison Square Garden, you know, massive title match. This is just a local thing where they tried to work a $500 side bet, you know, stipulation gimmick. And they went through with it, you know, where he couldn't continue after uh, the first fall. And the crowd went apeshit. The cops escalated the situation. And next thing you know, they're holding a, a mob at gunpoint while backing out of the room and running to the next town. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens when, you know, I know that anytime the referee is telling me the bet props and sort of like what the point spread line is, that that competition is definitely going to be on the up and up. So I'm sure they were pissed. That's crazy. Ref bookie? Like, Yeah, the, the July 10th Dubuque Telegraph Herald had a short mention of Pesek who, quote, was threatened with violence by a crowd following his victory over Ben Pavelka at Crookston, Nebraska. 
Lewis was reportedly healing up from sciatica, while Zabisco, according to the Boston Post, had gone back to Poland to spend some, some of his easy-earned American dollars. He also returned to his homeland in August along with his brother because their mother was in poor health. Again, keeping the, the title on the shelf, if you will, because the champ had to be other places. So you don't have a champion who's competing regularly, which, and they're not creating like an interim title or anything. So that really does kind of hold up a lot of the bookings, a lot of the plannings, a lot of the draws. Yeah, that's very interesting how this like low tide has manifested off of this really hot finish because basically Lewis dropped the title and business dropped off. The other favorite pastime for wrestlers that summer was talking shit to the press. Woo! Still is, Daddy! July 23rd, Richmond Palladium, Joe Carroll Marsh, who you remember from the last episode from representing the kind of attempted trust buster Marin Plastina, he continued to run down the trust wrestlers, claiming Plastina is the real deal and that the show wrestlers were ducking him, despite Rickard willing to throw money at it. When Rickard offered a purse of 25 k for a bout last winter between Plastina and Zabisco, the brave Herman ducked, meaning Jack Herman, Stanislaw Zabisco's manager. He later made a match in Rochester, New York, and ran out of it. He'll run out of all others in which Plastina is involved. He knows Plastina, and he knows how Pless could shop up all the pokes who have been hippodrome as wrestlers under Curly's domination. He just said the H word? Oh, it is on! Oh, you know what, though? this He's pulling the classic, like... Clever Lang and Rocky Three, or you know Macho Man and those guys when they were coming at Jerry Lawler in the in the Tennessee War back then, like it's a uh, it's a classic thing to try to get the bigger dog in a fight with you because you can just say they're constantly ducking you if they don't take your challenge. Exactly, and that's been something that's been true in every combat sport since combat sports were invented, and it worked really well in a time where the business was being centralized and power was held by a few men. So to be on the outside, the best way to say it was, these guys are all phonies and I'm the real deal. And then when they don't fight you, you call them cowards. You know, we saw that, we discussed that a bit when we talked about the first UFC, when the Gracie family called out, you know, Mike Tyson and all these top kickboxers and, and wrestlers. who, And then because they wouldn't fight for chump change, they go, they're scared to fight me after all. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a telling tactic of where you are on the hierarchy because you're throwing the money up to get in front of this guy and he doesn't even know your name. It's a, it's a tough spot, but I mean, I've seen it work before, man. It depends on how you play it, but I don't find Sandow. If Sandow goes for it, it's because Sandow is baiting the bait. And speaking of talking trash, in the Greatinger Times, Farmer Burns was interviewed and at 61 years old claimed he could beat Strangler Lewis in a real match and said that only his student Marin Placina could down all of them in short order and then take the championship belt from Zabisco. Oh, so we got Team Burns coming back in the mix now. That's that's an old school team. That's got to be like the the early 1900s equivalent of like Team Quest. Yeah, well, keep in mind, Burns was the trainer for Plastina. So oh, yeah. he was going to bat for oh, a yeah. student. He's going to go out there and say, I'm 61 and I can whoop all your asses. Imagine what my prime heavyweight could do to you. Yeah, and it's effective strategy because Burns is probably accurate that he could look about 89% of those guys. Burns is one of the baddest grapplers in the history of history of what we've ever gone on, what we've ever covered. And it did start paying off because on July 21st, according to my favorite paper, the Omaha Bee, 
Jack Herman announced that Zabisco would accept a match against Marin Plastina by the end of the year, so long as someone lined up a sizable amount of money. Yeah, that's usually what it does. Money talks, but apparently twenty-five grand was not enough. October 4th in San Francisco, Lewis versus Stetcher with a two-hour time limit for two out of three falls. Stetcher won by referee decision, and Lewis was looking physically worn out by the end, to the point of his wife looking disappointed at ringside. Lewis appeared sickly and was coughing towards the end, so... You know, maybe the time off was because he was sick and he was getting better, or, you know, maybe he just got out of shape due to uh, inactivity, who can say, but he put over Stetcher and didn't look very good himself while doing it. Well, at least that's the best best use you can get out of him if his health is in decline, is to do some jobs and get some other guys over, because he still is the hottest heel in the business. No one's, no one's gotten near that level of heat since. Another reason for disorganization in wrestling at the time is the weakened and disinterested Jack Hurley lost his grip on the wrestling business. Sandow and Lewis broke off and formed their own company and brought along Stanislaw Zabisco with them. Also attempting to fill the vacuum was Jack Hurley's nemesis, or at least one of his many nemeses, Tex Rickard, who threw his metaphoric hat into the metaphoric wrestling ring as well. He tried to sign everyone else under contract, which included Marin Plastina, whose manager Joe Carroll Marsh had been stirring up trouble for Jack Curley, whom he hated. Marsh and Plastina would show up at trust-booked matches and run down the wrestlers as fake that Plastina could beat in real life. So it even got to the point where they're not just mouthing off to the press. They're showing up at shows and running their mouths in front of them. So, it, like, they really did have an amazing campaign yeah, to get Plastina over in the press and the public eye. That's ballsy, man, because you show up to somebody else's house, you are probably going to get a fight. And that is a different level of making somebody back down, because if you show up at their show and they don't do anything, now you can legitimately claim that you basically came in their house and smacked their, smacked their dishes on the floor and then they didn't do nothing. That's, that's pretty ballsy, man. And it ended up paying off in a sense. And what happened next is a tale we've told before, but I never get tired of telling. At Madison Square Garden on November 14, 1921, Tex Rickard booked Marin Plastina against John Pesek, who had been the policeman for the trust and was now with the Sandow Company. Zabisco was supposed to meet the winner. It seemed like a bad blood, legit shoot match, which made fans old and new come out in droves. Men like Tom Jenkins, Ernst Robler, and Dr. Roller came out to see it, wow. as was Commissioner William Muldoon. He, everybody had a lot of interest in this match with its history, with all the press built up to it. It was a big goddamn deal that this was happening. The commission, though, had banned the toehold leg scissors, and headlock unless they were used as a pinning move, but, but were illegal if they were cranked to damage an opponent, which I found very interesting because they were understanding that these moves could be used as as transition moves. You know, it's kind of like how Gotch would use the toehold not as a crank to tap, yes. but using it to turn you over onto your onto your back. Same thing with Stetcher and Pesek's leg scissor, where it was used to get the shoulders down. But if you were just cranking it or squeezing it or whatever, then it became a problem, then it was illegal. A heck of a judge's call to make, but hey, I'm glad that job wasn't mine. Yeah, and that's, you know, you see some of that now with like amateur, like high school style wrestling where 
you, there are things that are no doubt a submission hold, but you use them to put the guy in a position where he's basically got to pin himself to get out of it. Yeah, and that you still see Nelsons and chicken yeah. wings and things like that, where you're you're allowed to use it as a turn, not as a burn. I guess it would be a a, 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 yeah. a, a, a way to phrase it. And that's kind of what they're applying here, where these moves were fine to use so long as you weren't cranking it to hurt. You're just using it to turn them. Yeah, it's a it's a positional lever as opposed to a finishing submission. So these moves were banned from a wrestling match under those circumstances, but this was not going to be a wrestling match. Sandale gave Pesic a very clear mission. Make a statement and make an example out of Plastina. As soon as the match started, Pesic started thumbing Plastina's eyes and headbutting him when they got close. It was so vicious and obvious that Plastina was awarded the first fall at 11 minutes due to Pesic being disqualified. Despite severe warnings from the Athletic Commission and the referee, Pesic went right back to eye-gouges, punches, and headbutts as soon as the second fall started. At one point, they actually hit the canvas, but the much bigger and stronger Plastina managed to buck off Pesic and get back to his feet. Pesic was DQ'd again at the 24-minute mark. And he didn't give a fuck, because that's what he was there to do, man. He's like a goon in hockey. He's there to send a message, go into the penalty box, and let it be known, don't fuck with the hierarchy. He's there doing his job as a policeman, and I guarantee Sandow couldn't have been happier. The crowd was near rioting, so the commission ruled a third fall to a finish for some goddamn reason. Wow. Pesek clearly assumed he could get away with murder at this point, and might have actually done so if the ref hadn't stopped it after seven minutes of headbutts, punches, and thumbs to the eyes. The crowd rushed the ring, and all hell almost broke loose. Plastina was a bloody mess and was rushed to the hospital. For what it's worth, Plastina was awarded the win. The commission held Pesek's money and banned him for life from wrestling in New York City. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what this is? This is killing a town. This is Sandow saying, all right, New York, fuck you. You want to fuck with us with this overly stingy athletic commission after we tried to play ball? You got this guy who is Curly's nemesis that has driven our business partner out and changed things for us? We're going to shit on your champion. We're going to shit on your town. And we're going to fucking get as much trouble for you on the way out as possible. And I don't even, I don't necessarily see the town being the the direction, you know, the, the focus of the ire. If you yeah, know. yeah, not the town it, per se. Because this, this was, we have to send a message that if you show up and you cause these problems, it doesn't matter what town you're in, we will fuck your shit up. And yes. You, and you will, you will not, to the point that you will never be the same again. I feel like it did show a massive disregard for the athletic commission and for what legislature was doing. Curly tried to play it safe. Curly yeah. tried to placate. Sandow had a my way or the highway type yep. of attitude, and he didn't give a shit who he pissed off or who got hurt when he sick John Pesek on them. And that's why I think it was like a two for one deal because, you know, his. Uh, uh, Tex, his base was in New York, Madison Square Garden and the Athletic Commission. So these are the collective thorns in the sides of Sandow. So it was, a, it was like a machine gun fire of fuck yous to everybody. And Sandow and his group would tell the story again and again, making it sound like Pesek took Plastina apart in a shoot instead of just being a dirty fighter in what was supposed to be a work or at best a friendly, you know, law-abiding shoot match. So 
Sandow definitely, as he always did, embellished the story the more it got told, where it made it sound like it was a, a great shoot wrestling match, where he was out-positioned, where he was out-gunned, but then, you know, Pesek would add on the layer of brutality on top of that, as opposed to what really happened, which was there was almost no actual wrestling because Pesek was there to brutalize his opponent. Plastida couldn't get started on a grappling match. They were spent maybe 30 seconds on the canvas because it was just nonstop thumbs to the eyes, punches, and headbutts. Yeah, I mean, Sandow really did make an intentional message, and that is so different on all those levels because if, if, if appeasing the athletic commission was part of the thought process and putting, putting Zabisco over for the title, then you know it was part of the thought process of, okay, well, we're not playing ball that way anymore. While Jack Curley took most of the blame in the press, I agree with Lewis biographer Steve Yohei's view of it being all Sandow's call. At that point, Jack Curley wasn't really involved in New York City wrestling, but it's not like the sports press had the internet so they could keep up to date on the dirt sheets and Twitter or whatever, and it felt like a Curley move against two of Curley's longtime foes in Tex Rickert and Joe Carroll Marsh in Curley's hometown of New York City. So it makes sense that everybody kind of pushed that on to Curley yes. because it felt like something Curley might have done and it was in Curley's backyard against people that Curley hated. It's just these were all obstacles that Sandow kind of inherited when he took over. So the people who were opposing and in the way of Curley were now by default in the way of Sandow and he took care of it in a much different way than Curly would have. Dude, but he made it look like it was Curly. Dude, that was like Godfather level strategy oh, right yeah. there. That is beautiful shit because yes, that was right when you were telling me that I'm like, there it is. There's the missing ingredient of why he did it in New York. That's why he did it. It's because he got to proxy Curly because Curly was the guy who had all this heat. When actually Curly was the guy trying to make nice and like put the Greco guy over to, to appease the athletic commission and work with him. And now he's getting basically used as the false flag Trojan horse to get all the blame. Oh, Sandow yeah. is no, good, he, bro. Yeah, he really was playing three-dimensional chess at every level, and gosh darn it, I admire the heck out of it. Oh, dude, that is how you screw your enemies. We gotta, we gotta pull some Sandows here, buddy. Pesek's manager, Larney Lichtenstein, lost his New York license, as did Joe Carroll Marsh for some reason, even though his guy was a victim. Lichtenstein apparently wasn't in on it and quit as Pesek's manager, Max Bowman, Sandow's brother, took over as his representative. Clearly promises were made to take care of Pesek after this because it cost his career dearly, but the message was sent to the wrestling world. Fuck with this new syndicate, and it meant your ass was in serious and physical danger. Plastina was no longer seen as a threat to the trust. Yeah, that's what happens. You talk shit, and then you get your ass whooped by one of the underbosses, you pretty much don't get to talk anymore. And that's why this story keeps getting so wild, because everything we just described happened inside of a calendar year. Every single thing we talked about was within 12 months, from Lewis winning the title, to dropping to Zabisco, to Pesic coming on board, to starting to rough people up, to Jack Curley getting out of the business, to Sando fully taking over, to this horrific blemish on the fine sport of pro wrestling that almost crushed wrestling in New York for a little while. You know, William Muldoon was outraged. Uh, careers were cut short. Men were hospitalized. But you know what? That's showbiz, baby. 
Man, I could just see Sandow just waiting for the day when he gets to tell Muldoon, it was me all along, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that's where we're going to put a pin in it. I mean, you really, you really can't really go past that in one episode. That was too climactic to not be the climax. So consider this the resolution. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, when we come back next time, we'll be looking at what happened during Stanislaus Abisko's title reign and what happened afterwards. Make sure you like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I keep finding these fun old headlines and articles about this type of thing that I like to post. Plus, we like hearing from you. We like to hear what you thought about these episodes. So if you have some feedback, by all means, post it in the comments. So for now, for today, for tonight, tomorrow morning maybe, and for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Goodbye, everybody. Yes, peace out. Protein shake, because we're in training.